You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine, produced in cooperation with AMDA. Your host is Dr. Eric Tangelos, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and a Certified Medical Director in Long-Term Care. Which patients are most susceptible to developing delirium? And what do physicians need to know about treating patients who demonstrate signs of the condition? Joining us to discuss delirium is Dr. William Smucker, Professor of Family Medicine at Northeastern Ohio University's College of Medicine and Medical Director of the Altenheim Nursing Home in Strongville, Ohio. Welcome, Bill. Hi. We're going to talk about delirium today, and we better start with a good definition. Well, delirium is often called by people by the more vernacular names of confusion or sundowning, but what it really is is an acute change in mental state that fluctuates throughout the course of the day. So by acute, I mean it's come on in the last hours to days and represents a change in behavior for the person. They also will often have some trouble focusing their attention so they may not feel as though you feel when you're talking to them they're not necessarily connecting with you or they're looking off into space. They may have some disorganized speech and they may also have extreme sleepiness or a little bit of hypervigilance, but extreme sleepiness is a little more likely. So that combination of a fluctuating mental status and difficulty with attention in addition to either some disorganized feature, altered level of consciousness is what it takes to make the diagnosis. And is it common in long-term care settings? Delirium is very common. It's very under-recognized. In hospitalized patients, maybe 25 to 50% of people will have it, especially amongst the elderly. Patients with dementia are prone to delirium, and they're particularly prone to get this after a serious medical illness or after a surgical procedure like bypass surgery or a hip fracture. So then when those folks get transferred to the hospital to the nursing home, they frequently still come with their problems of delirium. And people who have had delirium remain at risk for it. So frail elders with dementia are at risk for it. It's very common as a presenting symptom of illness amongst people in the nursing home. So if they get a urinary tract infection, pneumonia, dehydration, medication reaction, their symptoms and signs will be those of a delirium. When you get admissions to your nursing home, how many people come to you with delirium? I would say upwards of 50%. And it's very subtle because a person may come and seem to be fairly alert and oriented at, say, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, but then I'll get a call at 2 in the morning saying they're doing some unusual behavior, taking their clothes off, saying they're leaving, pulling out their IV, things like that. That shows you the fluctuating course of this. And family members will often be confused by it because they'll say, well, when I visited this morning, they were fine. Now this evening, they're not so good or vice versa. So I would say up to 50% of people coming from the hospital will have some level of delirium. I would guess that you've got a pretty good success rate at making most of them better. Well, (laughs) I would hope so. Most of the time, you can find one or more reversible causes. So when they come to me, they may be getting over their pneumonia, heart failure, or surgery. So their delirium is as in part of their recovery, their delirium diminishes over time. It doesn't get better immediately. It may take several days or a week before it's completely gone. But by paying attention to medications, optimizing their physical function, and making sure that there are no new causes that may be exacerbating their delirium, yeah, we do get most of them better over time. For your patients that are going back to the hospital, again, we'll just use your examples in your nursing home. How many people are you sending to the hospital with an acute change in status that includes delirium? I would say that's pretty common because the way, again, that people will get sick is I'll get a call and say we couldn't wake them up for lunch. 
or they're not responsive. I'll get a call that says they didn't take their lunch or they're not responsive, they're overly lethargic. And then when we begin the evaluation, we find that perhaps their heart failure is bad or they've developed signs of a severe infection. So they often go to the hospital in a delirious state. So I have to call ahead to the emergency room when I can and say, here's the situation. This is not this person's usual mental state. This is a change for them. They're usually much more talkative, alert, oriented, etc. So you're also serving as their advocate to provide some background information as well, which is an important point here, isn't it? I do my best. I'm not 100%, but I do think it's helpful to the folks in the emergency room and the hospitalists who may take care of them. Now, how do you teach at your nursing home for staff to be vigilant and observant for the development of a delirious situation? We have a thing that we call a change of condition form. Our approach is we call it a change of condition. So anything that is out of the ordinary for a person, not eating, being up all night, sleeping during the day, anything that changes then begins a cascade of steps. They look at them physically, they do their vital signs, and they review their medicines to see if they've had any new medicines or any changes in their medicines in the last few days. Then they give me a call with that information. That usually will uncover the common causes of delirium, infection, medications, and uh, deterioration in conditions like heart failure or COPD or other medical conditions. Is your facility doing anything to change its ways or to adapt some kind of uh, format to prevent delirium? Can it even be prevented? You can reduce delirium. And the most important things that we do, especially in people who are prone, is we try to have family bring familiar objects. So that may help orient a person to a new place, especially a person who's just arrived in the nursing home. So a familiar picture, a familiar pillow, other things like that will help. We also try to figure out what the optimum physical and sensory environment is. So if a person seems to be doing poorly where it's quiet, we'll bring them out by the nurse's station and vice versa. So a little too much or a little too little stimulation can be a thing that sets them off. We also try to minimize their high-risk medications. So on admission, we will discontinue or at least hold for a day or two medications that are associated with delirium. We try to be clear about treating their pain, and then we work to make sure that their vision and hearing are normal, If they had hearing aids, they're often lost in the shuffle between going to the hospital and to the nursing home, so we get them in if we've got them and make sure that their eyeglasses are on. So relieving sensory impairment, preparing the environment, maximizing their comfort, and maximizing the environment to help them feel calm and collected and familiar environments, those are the best things to do to prevent a delirium for someone who's at risk. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Tangelos, and joining me to discuss delirium is Dr. William Smucker, Professor of Family Medicine at Northeastern Ohio University's College of Medicine and Medical Director of the Altenheim Nursing Home in Strongville, Ohio. We've been talking about some of the preventive strategies for delirium. We've been talking about the medical emergency that it can create. But let's now talk about some of the high-risk medications that can be associated with delirium. What are some of these medications, Dr. Smucker? One of my dictums that I teach my residents is any medicine that works in the brain can cause trouble in the brain. So that means that sleeping pills, antidepressants, antipsychotics all can cause difficulties, certainly opiates which have an effect in the brain. Then I think some other medicines that people don't often think of are antihypertensives and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. But to tell you the truth, I've seen just about every drug that there is cause problems with delirium. I forgot to mention, by the way, antibiotics and fluoroquinolones, which I love to use because they're simple and once a day, can cause confusion in the elderly.
Well, you've listed the medications, and it's a long list. Do you want to list some of the disease states as well that are contributors to delirium? The commonest contributors to delirium, in my experience, are infection. So a urinary tract infection or pneumonia. But you also need to be aware that common medical conditions such as heart failure and COPD, if they become out of control, may lead to decreased oxygenation, decreased perfusion of the brain, and that will help make a person appear delirious. And then, of course, electrolyte abnormalities, primarily dehydration will do it. So those are the big ones, uh, infection and deteriorations in chronic illnesses. Now, you've talked about the change in status as being one of the hallmarks and putting your staff to work and tuning into this concept. Is there a triage strategy that you work through? or? Yeah, indeed. So a person may be confused, but the most important question is, are they a danger to themselves or others? Or, and more importantly, these days when people come from the hospital with a little bit more intensive therapies, are they a danger to the treatment that they're receiving when they take out a vital IV or a feeding tube or some such thing? So number one, are they a danger to themselves or others? If so, then we need to take action. We need to either control that violence or perhaps send them back to the hospital. Then the other question is, is are they medically stable? So if a person is confused or lethargic, but they're otherwise doing okay, not hypoxic, not hypotensive, not tachypnic, we can keep an eye on them and try to reverse things. But if they're medically stable with normal vital signs and are lethargic and maybe sleep through lunch or are a little bit confused, we can keep them at the home. But if they're hypoxic or their blood pressure is unstable, then we're more likely to have to transfer them to the hospital for more intensive therapy. So the main one is danger to themselves or others and medically stable. Most of the folks we treat, we catch them early, so they're usually medically stable, and they're rarely a danger to themselves or others. Now, I'd like you to talk about one of the things that you do at your facility with regards to teaching the ABCs. The ABCs are a way to characterize behaviors and get people out of what I call sort of the emergency reaction mode. So it's not uncommon for me to get a call late at night and say, Sarah just hit somebody. Well, the first question is, you know, they want me to do something about it. But the real question is, what was going on before Sarah hit someone? That's the A, the antecedent. What happened before the behavior showed up? It may very well be that someone bumped into Sarah, someone tried to go in and change her wet clothing and didn't approach her gently and slowly enough and explain it enough. You need to know what happened. You're not going to medicate Sarah if you can change the antecedent. It may be this problem won't happen again. Then the next question, the B, what is the behavior? So sometimes nurses will call and they'll say, so-and-so's out of control. So-and-so's agitated. Well, that's not specific enough. So I ask them to be very specific. When you say she's agitated, what do you mean? Well, she's yelling or she's hitting or she's taking her clothes off. Well, those all have different responses. So what's the exact behavior? And then the next one is, and this, I must admit, frustrates the nurses quite a bit, the C, what are the consequences of the behavior? Sometimes wandering around and saying that you want to go home is very disruptive to the nurses who are trying to keep things orderly and put people in bed for the night, but it's not a severe consequence in terms of danger to the person or others. On the other hand, if a person is violent or going in and threatening another resident, or is taking out a critical IV line, then the consequences are important. It's hard for me to triage sometimes over the phone, but I try to get people to say, well, how serious is it that we immediately stop this behavior or do something? Most of the time, if you back away from the person and give them some space, even exaggerated behaviors will cool down. So we try not to confront people and create a adversarial action plan or medicate them immediately. Well, it's really good that you've talked about some of these problematic behaviors. Not all of them occur in delirious states, but they certainly can be linked. 
And I think the AMDA clinical practice guideline that was written on the topic includes both delirium and acute problematic behaviors in long-term care settings. Yeah, it does. I think anyone who is trying to come up with an organized approach to this would be well served to read it and use it as an educational tool for their folks at the nursing home. Uh, I quote-unquote lost my first one of these because I gave it to our nurses to pass around, so I had to get a new one in preparation for tonight's talk. So it was popular, and I think it did get people thinking about uh, how to respond to to problem behaviors. We've talked a lot about delirium. We've talked about how to simplify the environment and to remove certain stressors. Every once in a while, our physicians are stuck with using a medication to help settle the situation. What are your suggestions? I have very specific suggestions. Not The conventional antipsychotic medications and the most well-known and most diverse medication in that category is haloperidol, is one that is recommended by most experts in delirium. You can give it orally or intramuscularly, and in the frail elderly, a half a milligram, which you could repeat again in a half hour or an hour if needed, is usually enough. If you can get someone to take the liquid in a cup of tea, you're way ahead. If you have to give them an injection, you have to. I use those for those situations when people are a danger to themselves or others. I avoid benzodiazepines, which are used relatively reflexly, by many nurses and many house officers, the problem with benzodiazepines is at the doses most people use, they can cause what's called paradoxical agitation. So a person actually becomes more upset and agitated than if you didn't treat them at all. So I tend to avoid them and use the conventional antipsychotics. I will note that people are concerned about antipsychotics because of all the regulations around them. This is one of the situations where conventional antipsychotics are appropriate in long-term care The most important thing is to give it once or twice a time-limited amount and not leave it on there, the person's medication record as a PRN for an infinite amount of time or as a scheduled medicine because the delirium should resolve and they shouldn't need it more than once or twice. I'm sure as medical director you have to teach your staff to this on a fairly regular basis. Actually, they've learned it from me. They know not to ask for (laughs) for the benzos. (laughs) That's very good. Any other stories you'd like to share with us before we close? Uh... No, I can't think of any other than an organized approach like we talked about with looking at people's vitals and physical environment, physical examination, really will lead you to where you need to go almost all the time. Dr. Smucker, thank you very much for being our guest this week on Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine. My pleasure. Thank you. You have been listening to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine from ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine is produced in cooperation with AMDA, For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.